Then Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. I don't know about you, but I don't think of the Palm Sunday story ending like that. Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on this particular day is about as familiar as Bible stories get. The colt and the parade and the branches and the hosannas, this big messy scene that nobody in town could miss. And I sort of think of the story ending with enormous crowds filled with anticipation over what Jesus might do next spar with the religious authorities, or bang on the door of the Roman occupiers, or give a stirring speech and galvanize a popular revolt. I think of this sort of powder keg of energy and excitement here, the makings for the explosion that we know is soon coming. But in Mark's version of the story, this is how it ends. The crowds disperse for the night, and Jesus and his disciples just kind of looking around for a bit before leaving town again and going to bed. You sort of want to pull Mark aside and say, uh, do you really need this verse? I'm not sure it's doing very much for you here. You're at the climax of your story, and this is kind of anticlimactic. Are you sure you want to end the story like this? I was surprised to bump into that verse at the end of our gospel reading this week, and I was ready to skip over it like I probably have just about every time before. But as I sat with that image this year, Jesus and his disciples just looking around in the temple after the fireworks that mark the beginning of Holy Week, I thought that maybe we shouldn't skip over it this time. Maybe it's one more way this familiar story means to upend our expectations. Expectations are very high among those lining the streets and welcoming Jesus to the city on this day. And Jesus is clearly very well aware of that fact. In fact, it seems like he himself has pretty deliberately raised expectations with the way he orchestrates the day's events. This dramatic entrance doesn't just happen by chance. Jesus knows full well what he's doing. To begin with, there's the matter of that colt. The colt, right? We might take it for granted that Jesus would enter the city this way, but Mark certainly doesn't. I mean, if you actually look carefully at our Bible reading, just about half that text today is taken up with the animal that Jesus will ride. First, the instructions to the disciples on where to find it, and then their excursion to borrow it and bring it back to Jesus and get him situated on top. The actual entrance into Jerusalem takes one verse, and this business about the colt takes up six. We are not supposed to miss this particular animal. And why is that? Well, somebody leading a procession this particular way, not seated on a tall, impressive horse, but on a shorter, humbler colt, is how the prophet Zechariah envisioned the Messiah. Rejoice greatly! O daughter Zion, shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's not really the usual way to lead a large group of people. A ruler would not normally demonstrate his great triumph and victory 
by riding into town on a small farm animal. But it's how Zechariah envisioned this extraordinary king who would one day restore the people's fortune and bring about a new era of peace. It's a symbol that the crowds definitely would have been able to recognize. So Jesus is deliberately raising expectations here with his mode of transportation, riding on a colt. And it's also not just any city that he's riding into, but Jerusalem. Jerusalem was not just the site of the temple, the center of religious life. It was also the city of kings. In former times, this was the royal city. David moved his palace there several hundred years earlier, and until the destruction of the city by the Babylonians, that's where the kings of Judah ruled from. There hadn't been a king there in nearly 600 years, but it's the place where all those hopes for a new ruler were centered. Jesus knew that, and so did everybody else. All right, so Jesus is riding into the royal city on a colt, and on top of that, he's not doing it on just any day of the year, but at the time of Passover. It's one of the busiest times of the year in Jerusalem. If you want to make a scene, you've certainly got crowds to work with. But there's more to the timing than just that. Because what's being celebrated at Passover? What is this event that everybody's remembering? It's the Festival of Freedom. The time for remembering how God broke the yoke of slavery laid upon the people in Egypt and led them out. It's the festival for recalling deliverance from an oppressive empire. What better time then, could you imagine, to start a new revolution, a new revolt against the Romans, the empire of the day? Given the sort of mission that Jesus has been on ever since he began his ministry, proclaiming and enacting this new kingdom, the kingdom of God, it's not at all hard to imagine how the crowds lining the street would perceive what's happening here. Riding into Jerusalem like the king foretold by prophets at the very festival celebrating the nation's deliverance, how could people have seen this any other way? Jesus is finally taking on the mantle of the Messiah, drawing attention to himself as the bringer of liberation and a new age. He has deliberately stoked expectations that high with this dramatic entrance. And at the very same time, in the very same story, he's already begun thwarting those very same expectations. Because really, what kind of a conquering king shows up this way? With no army? With no weapons? With no plan? What kind of ruler rides into town with a bunch of peasants armed with nothing but branches. There is a more familiar sort of ruler entering the city about the same time as Jesus. We always hear about Pilate being in Jerusalem during Holy Week, but he didn't actually live there. He was stationed in Caesarea Maritima on the Mediterranean coast, and he just made the trip to Jerusalem every year for the festival to be sure things didn't get out of hand in this normally quiet, city in his jurisdiction that swelled from 40,000 people to 200,000 for this festival. So Pilate's entering the city as well, and he doesn't come alone. With him are horses and troops, banners and swords. 
That's what a ruler looks like. That's what power looks like. Jesus has raised expectations, but it soon becomes clear to anybody watching that he has no intention of meeting Rome on its own terms. He has no weapons, no plan of attack. If he's bringing liberation, it certainly doesn't look like what everybody has in mind. Which brings us to that funny little scene at the temple. Is this what a conquering hero would do once he reached the center of the city? Just kind of look around for a little while and then leave town? I don't know about you, but I'd expect an inspiring speech or a battle plan or a confrontation of some kind. Confrontations will come over the coming days, of course. But I think the sort of anticlimactic end to the day here is one more signal that while Jesus is taking on the mantle and the images and the languages of the Messiah, the one we've all been waiting for, he's going to inhabit that role in a way that nobody saw coming. He's going to overturn expectations at every turn. I'm here to deliver you, Jesus says, but not through violence. I'm here to show you the way to freedom, but not through trampling down others. I'm here to open up a new future, but it may not look very much like the one you had imagined. Pumping expectations that high and then deliberately thwarting them is a pretty dangerous thing to do. If you turn the tables on people like that, as Jesus did, you're not leaving them with all that many options. They can dismiss you as crazy or dangerous, or they can listen up and let their expectations be overturned as well. We know which of those options virtually everybody in the story will take in the days to come. We know how the religious leaders will react to this threat to the status quo. We know how the Romans will react to this potential disturbance to law and order. We know how the crowds will finally react when Jesus gets their hopes up and doesn't deliver what they had in mind. It's a story of just how profoundly we resist having our expectations turned over, having our familiar ways of seeing and inhabiting the world challenged. And it is a story that keeps on confronting us with just that possibility. Does peace look like the attempts of those in control to prevent change? Or does it look like the one sharing a final meal with his friends? Does power look like rows of armed soldiers or like the one who will not stop loving, who, no matter the opposition, will not waver in his commitment to justice and mercy? Does greatness look like those who've climbed the ladder of success or like the one who did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited but humbled himself becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, the Apostle Paul reminds us. Let this upside-down way of seeing and living form and shape you. That is the invitation to each of us this Holy Week. Not to look away, 
not to dismiss, but to let the story overturn our expectations once again and to find in their place what truly matters, the strong love of God, which always finds a way. Amen.